I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Hello and welcome to the Media Podcast. I'm Ollie Mann. On today's show, the sun lifts its paywall, but in the new world of ad blockers, what hope is there for ad-funded journalism? The latest radars are out. We take a look around the country at the state of UK radio and why Radio 1 should focus on being a radio station first. Plus, more on the threat to freedom of information requests, Vice plans a free-to-air channel in the UK, and of course, our world-famous media quiz. That's all coming up on today's Fully Funded for Now, but keep the donations coming in. Thank you very much. Media podcast. And joining us today in the fine surroundings of the Hospital Club, it is the MD of Content Company Something Else, Mr. Steve Ackerman. Hello, Steve. Good afternoon, Ollie. Uh, you've been working on something suitably ghoulish for this Halloween weekend. Are you talking about the Radio 4 drama? Is that what you're talking about? No, I was talking about you going around trick-or-treating on every Radio Commissioner's door. <laughs> yes, no, I was talking about your Radio 4 drama, yes. yes I was I... giving you an opportunity to plug. Oh, okay, that's, that's very kind. It's a uh, binaural drama for Radio 4 called The Stone Tape uh, directed by Peter Strickland if you know Peter Strickland sort of famous film director so if you listen to it with your headphones on it will freak you out that sounds like a promise worth exploring okay and making her return to the show it is the journalist known as the Fleet Street Fox Ms. Susie Boniface. I'm miss. saying Ms. What do you miss. prefer? You miss. prefer Miss. I should have asked first. I'm notoriously unmarried. I think <laughs> that's fine. Miss, thank you. Notoriously unmarried. I is... think Ms. is for something people who can't be bothered to find out whether someone's Mrs. or Miss or anything else. It's, a, it's, I, it's a one of those things field. that councils use to send letters to people because they can't be asked to ask a polite question. And as a journalist, I find it appalling. I know I feel <laughs> suitably chastised. That's fantastic. A rant within the first one minute of the podcast. <laughs> I think I think notoriously unmarried sounds like a good slogan for any tabloid column though it's on my business card yeah exactly uh, now you write for the mirror mainly yes. uh, how have you been enjoying Jeremy Corbyn's rise to the top oh, well you know if he does well and he can be elected then it must be for the good but I think the sophology the electoral maths is against him actually being able to take power because the way the last election worked means Labour really has to win over lots of English seats like Coventry and Plymouth and places like that and I don't think he's got that kind of mass appeal. Okay. He has got a few years at it but I can't see it happening so uh, okay. as a result I think it's bad. This isn't the place for serious electoral Sorry. analysis. I preferred it when you just did the groan because I did. think you know, just <laughs> we could all interpret You did ask. Uh, now you've got a book out as well. Not that it's the reason you're here. I've got another book out this week, uh, soon, yeah, for time for Christmas. Tell us all Second about book. it. It's The Bluffer's Ms. Guide Politics. to Social Media uh-huh. and it's, um, it's just one of those sort of small stocking filler things like you know they get the bluffer's guide to wine and the bluffer's guide to sex and things. it makes you sound like an expert in something that you might not actually be an expert in and if you think you are an expert you might learn some things that are quite useful so there's lots of things in there about how to outrun a twitter lynch mob uh, the life cycle of a troll this kind of thing and um, how to understand how these things work the, the movers and shakers the winners and losers in social media how to use it what it's for places that are now a social media graveyard like Bebo and MySpace and, and all this kind of stuff and it's a little kind of potted history and a little useful how-to guide and it's perfect for Christmas Do you tell people that if they at reply people at the front of the message it only goes to that person and other people that follow both of them because everyone in the media needs to learn that it's so irritating when they say at Ollie Mann coming up on my show later and then you're like yeah only I get to see that No but I do say that the best way of dealing with a troll is to correct their grammar and spelling and uh, send it back to them 
with, with like marks on. Right, on to the news, since that's uh, why we're here. Uh, the Sun are going to drop their paywall, according to a report in The Guardian. <laughs> Uh, not to say that we told you that was coming, but we did. Uh, Rebecca Brooks has told staff, uh, Friday morning this was, that the paywall is coming down on the News UK site at the end of November. Uh, but the U-turn comes at a difficult time for ad-funded news sites online. Apple recently updated iPhone user software to allow ad-blocking software for the first time. Uh, and last month in response, basically, the German Daily Build protested against Adblock Plus by producing a paper with all of the ads blacked out. Uh, City AM as well have recently blocked ad blocker users from their site. Susie, first of all, before we move on to what business model the Sun is going to find itself in now, uh, is this the right move? If you were Rebecca Brooks, if you can imagine yourself in that situation, uh, would you have made this decision? If I was Rebecca Brooks, I'm not sure I would have stuck with that hairstyle, any of those clothes, or indeed I had the brass neck to go back to work at that company. But... To be honest, you have to have advertising as part of any journalism-funded business. You have to. You have since the Daily Current was first published in Wimbledon Pub in Fleet Street in 1702. That had news on the front page. It had adverts on the back, and there was a little message from the owner, who was a woman, by the way, publisher, who said, "We are going to let people make their own mind up about the news, and we are published. We are funded by advertisers, so that you know we're not funded by the government or anybody else. This is how we achieve independence." And that is the process which has always worked since then. And it does work for the internet as well, increasingly so, though there are problems. Um, And the Sun's problem up till now has been a really small number of users for its website. Now, it has been able to get them to pay, but they're there for the bingo and the football and, to some extent, for the Page 3 girls. Although, why you'd pay for that, I don't know, because it's free online. Nostalgia. (laughs) Nostalgia, maybe, or just stupidity. They've had some niche users, but they have not got a news site. They do not get immense traffic they've only got about 50,000 mobile users a day for example compared to about 15 million in a month for the mirror so uh, which is free so you know they they advertising is all about numbers and how you get people in although they they do have customers who pay and subscribers may be more useful to advertisers than the other sort they're also probably more likely to use ad blocking and so on and so forth so you need to get a lot of free traffic in too. I'd be very interested to know what on earth they're going to do as a news site because they don't have a news website at present. And Steve, what about this issue of ad blocking? Because, yes, they go onto the free web, even with all the Murdoch money behind it, and, you know, let's say that they do succeed in their aims and they manage to equal the mirror within, you know, a year or two. Uh, they're not necessarily going to be able to monetize it because the users are blocking the adverts. The whole ad blocking issue is, I think, really interesting. And um, I saw a great phrase the other day, I can't quite remember who said it, but someone said, look, ad blocking's been around for ages, it's called going and making a cup of tea. And it is true, I mean, ad avoidance from a consumer is something that's baked into us and is only obviously being exacerbated now in terms of both on-demand viewing and and the way we all scroll through the adverts and obviously in terms of when you're on on a website and you're getting you know you're seeing an advert and most of the time you click that little cross in the top right hand corner so you can get rid of it as fast as it how how difficult is that compared to downloading an app how much memory does that take in your device almost nothing just click off it and so actually i think if you're a brand you've got to say well do you want to be that irritant that is getting in the way of the of the content that someone wants to access or can I can I aid that in some way and I think there's a big difference you know obviously it's accepted brands brands are needed to fund you know that is the model basically until someone comes up with something better with very few exceptions like the economist and the FT where you've got a very niche product that you can charge people for until someone comes up with something better brands are going to be necessary but what I think this really rotates around is the new models that we're starting to see evolve so part of that is obviously native advertising in terms of brands starting to create something that's of worth to the audience and I think actually what, what people like um, like Lauren Laverne's website, The Pool, are doing, which, are, which is quite interesting, is not taking an advertising approach but taking a sponsorship approach where they say a brand will cover a certain area. You know, Marks and Spencer's is our, is our brand uh, sponsor for our food section. We're not saying that we're publishing Marks and Spencer's content. We're just saying they're funding everything that's here. They're not editorially yeah, the, the influencing problem, what's which here. The publishers of The Daily Current would, would raise as much as I'm going to right now is that when you do that, you've got a story about M&S salt content in sandwiches. Can that website cover it? Can that news outlet cover yeah, but that's, it? But Ditto with native advertising. Although you can say that can add uh, you know, usability or usefulness for the, for the end user, 
I think if you've, you're using, you're writing an article, and the Telegraph does this quite a bit as well, and some of its print stuff, you're writing a lot of time about China and stuff, and stuff that's sponsored by the Xinhua News Agency. People notice and people object because the one thing they really expect from every news outlet, no matter what it is, is that it's fairly independent and that it's following the rough agenda of its yeah, print sisters. But, but I just don't think that's true. I mean, I mean, look at the scandals there were last year. Was it the Telegraph over one, over, over one of the banks where they were intentionally avoiding HSBC? HSBC yep. just weren't reporting on it at all because HSBC were yeah, a big fund of them. Look how many readers they lost. Well, we've obviously got been. we've got owners who you know for almost all our national papers who've got their own agendas and make sure that that, that there's only certain things that are or aren't talked about depending on what their commercial agenda is. And obviously the the BBC bashing is potentially one of those cases in point where is that something the public care about as much as the owners care about? So there's always those there's always going to be those fr- frictions, aren't there? I mean, I mean, ultimately the challenge for newspaper owners in terms of the world the world of the web is they are going to have to find a new model because the current model just isn't going to translate across to the web because you're competing on a much wider landscape you're not just competing against other yeah, newspapers anymore yeah but you've got anymore. to have a kind of sponsorship which isn't going to influence the yeah. news content of what it is yeah. that you do and no, the quality I, I, of that product definitely you know, agree with if that you, if, you can, if you can quite happily be sponsored by M&S and yet still give M&S a shoeing when they need yeah. shoeing fine yeah. I think it's if, if it's a big money sponsorship thing there's going to be especially in the current climate that's just not going to happen I don't think native advertising is quite there either but this is why uh, companies like BuzzFeed have the upper hand on this isn't it it's not just that they're the experts at creating advertorial for want of a better phrase it's that the audience expect it because they've grown out of that culture so right from the beginning that's what BuzzFeed always was it's not what the sun was so it's harder isn't it for a heritage title to say yeah, right as of now we're doing brand yeah they still have a sort of a reputation for newsworthiness which would clash with that but I think as well what Steve said earlier on is that human beings are very adept at tuning out advertising whether it comes in the form of radio or TV or anything else and I see advertorials and flick, you, know, you can spot them and you glaze over them also what the thing with the ad blocking is the most of it tends to happen on desktop computers although Apple have got this new app for the iPhone to make, make it more popular generally people don't bother on mobiles quite so much and mobiles is one of the biggest areas of growth for online news so it may not have quite the same impact as it has done on it's desktop. a huge take up though in the month since they've introduced it. In I, mean, I wouldn't bother doing it on my phone. I, I wouldn't either. I wouldn't either. That's true. And, and actually, is the onus on the consumer to an extent? You know, probably everyone listening to this doesn't have ad blocking software because they they're aware that the media can't make money if they install it. Is it up to the consumer I don't to make that's that true. I, don't, I, I think for most consumers, I think it doesn't even occur to them. And I think really the challenge is actually on the advertisers because ultimately, if you can produce advertising that is of worth to someone, you know, if someone's You've got, what, two or three seconds to catch someone's attention before they go, this is irritating me in terms of I want to get to the article I'm trying to get to. But if that advert is relevant to me, I mean, half the time, the, you know, the problem with most of the ads we're served is they're just not relevant. You know, you're getting served all sorts of products and things that just aren't relevant to you as a consumer. And obviously, when someone else decides it is relevant, doesn't mean that you think it's relevant. No, no, They've no. just decided this is relevant according to your search history. You know. Exactly. And obviously, the one possibility that the internet allows is for the audience to be super served, you know, as our understanding gets deeper and deeper of what people do or do and don't like. So that's really the challenge for advertisers. How do I grab someone's attention and make sure that actually my ad spend is being used in a way where I am... I am being ultra relevant to the people who who I want to reach. It's the old counter argument to TV. TV, you go for mass numbers, but you you're happy to say that there's going to be a lot of wastage because lots of the people you're reaching you're not interested in but you'll do that for the sake of the people you will reach yeah and online advertising should work better than the old display advertising yes. in print or tv and things because you can tell to the millisecond how much time someone has spent on a page whereabouts their eye on that page went down to how much of it they read and where they got there from and how they're accessing it and how many times it's been shared all the rest of it you don't have that in print advertising display advertising traditionally so i think although the model needs to be tweaked i think that in time as readership increases and people are more aware of how you can access people and, and really tailor adver- adverts to them but actually online, online advertising is going to be worth a lot more than it is now okay let's talk about the granddaddy of one to many media platforms radio uh, on thursday we had the latest rajars uh, they are the quarterly ratings for the industry uh, it's all done by listeners filling in diaries of what they've heard uh, this quarter is for spring into summer so we've no information yet as to the return of chris moyles and how that's gone down but there are still plenty of interesting finds we asked Folder Media's Matt Deegan, friend of the show, to crunch the numbers. 
Uh, latest figures are in, and it's been good news for digital radio, now accounting for 41.9% of all radio listening, uh, which is a pretty uh, stonking number. Two-thirds of that is listening through DAB Digital Radio. Uh, now, that's share, so that's volume of listening. When we look at reach, we find that 63% of the country listen to some form of digital radio each week. That's about 30 million people. 20 million of them are listening to DAB, uh, 9 million listening online, and 7.7 million are tuning into their digital TV. Overall for Radio 1, not a bad quarter. If you look at the top line figures, pretty static. Um, If you start to dive into it, though, I think there's some potentially worrying trends for them. This quarter was their second lowest ever reach for 15 to 24 year olds. This demo that you know they really should be targeting and also the Radio 1 Breakfast Show had its lowest ever 15 to 24 reach as well. And what Radio 1 often say is they say, oh, don't think about the numbers, but think about the proportion of our audience that are 15 to 24. Well, it's kind of bad news for that as well because they make up, I think, pretty much the joint lowest proportion of its uh, total audience ever. Uh, and for the Breakfast Show, it's about the third lowest. It's it's ever been proportionally. Uh, so a lot to do for 15 to 24, so I think, for Radio 1. One of the things I suggested on my blog this week is, is how they should use their digital platforms, particularly the success they've had on YouTube, to again really push back to the radio. I think talking to some of the guys there, I think they see Radio 1 as a cross-media platform. But the thing their service license is pointing to mainly is that they're a radio station. Uh, but why not use YouTube more aggressively to push people back to the, to the linear broadcast? <laughs> London is such a competitive place uh, for radio listening. Lots of radio stations, both analogue and digital. Uh, It's where the ad agencies are, so there's always a lot of people concentrating on the numbers. Uh, It's got really tight at the top. Capital, Kiss, uh, Heart and Magic always battling out for the top spot. Today, uh, we've got uh, Kiss as the most listened to station, but only just 3,000 people ahead of Capital FM. If you look the other way at the volume of listening, how many hours, uh, then it's the other way around where Capital is the most listened to station uh, and kiss as number two this time we've got the last figures for xfm and they had a good one really uh, they were uh, across the network up to a million and forty nine thousand which is 104.9 their london frequency uh, hello geeks everywhere but yes a good good book for them to finish on i always think is there an element that people have all the pressure taken off them if you know your station's going uh, which maybe is why they relaxed and have done so well <laughs> In the rest of the country, uh, different things in different places. In Oxfordshire, uh, Jack FM and Jack 2 have been trying to push against Heart. It used to be called Fox FM, very strong in that area. Uh, now there are only 4,000 listeners behind them, which is a real success for them. it be interesting to see what happens over the next 12 months. Uh, also good figures for Orion in the Midlands, all their stations up quarter on quarter. And a brilliant performance by uh, their station, the East Midlands, Gem FM, up to 476,000, which pretty much is the, the highest it's ever been. Uh, but poor news for Key 103 in Manchester, uh, slipping from commercial number three to commercial number four, facing lots of challenges uh, from Capital Heart and Smooth. Steve Ackerman, uh, is Matt Deegan right that Radio One uh, is making a mistake putting all of its efforts into YouTube? and not branding that as come and listen to us on 97 to 99 FM? Or is that outmoded thinking? I think he's he's right and wrong at the same time. I, I, you know, I think he's right in that there's some tweaking that can happen to ensure that there's, there's a, a more circular journey going on for a member of the audience and that they're starting to sample other bits of Radio 1's output and ultimately, hopefully, to listen, listen to something. I think where he's wrong is that Radio 1... I think is quite right in taking the approach of not seeing themselves just as a radio station anymore and trying to develop themselves really as a youth brand because the audience they're trying to reach certainly do not view radio as their primary medium and therefore if Radio 1 uh, as the BBC's entry point for young listeners to the BBC is going to be relevant it's got to have those presences that it's got on YouTube and on social media and most interestingly on the iPlayer and I've said for a long time if you follow through the logical conclusion of BBC 3 going on Online, actually, the BBC's most powerful youth brand is not BBC Three; it's Radio One. And I would scrap BBC Three and brand that Radio One, and then complete that circular journey. And if the stations then are becoming brands rather than just radio stations, and your company something else for years has been rebranded, if you like, as a multi-platform content creation company, not as a radio, indeed, which is how you started out. Yeah. Is there any room left for people listening to this who 
consider themselves to work in the radio industry. I own a radio station, I own a radio indie, I am a radio producer. Will that exist in 10 years' time? It will exist in the sense of, of course, radio is not going away. I mean, listening is still as high as, as ever, uh, whether that's on-demand listening or it's it's live listening you know people like Apple don't start getting into the sort of listening space unless they think there's money to be to be made or there's some traction there but I think anybody who views himself just in the lens of a single platform creator is probably not quite understanding the way the world is evolving you know whether you're a TV producer a news journalist a radio producer you have to have things like social media skills baked into what you do or at least an understanding of those spaces it doesn't mean you've got to suddenly ignore your 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 radio skills that can be your core competency but the idea that all you do is make radio and the rest of the world sort of doesn't happen around you is i think really arcane and yeah all the focus is always on sort of how radio stations should change and how the industry is changing at a dramatic pace and very similar conversations to the one we were just having about paywalls and yet susie you look at the ratings Radio 2, doing very well, as ever. Radio yeah. 4, Radio people, 4 Extra, playing old like shit. People like their radio. <laughs> yeah. it's still, it still goes on. Everyone likes radio pop. Anyone has to listen to Nick Grimshaw, who's got an amazing ability to repel audiences, but in several media. It's like a multi-platform anti-magnet for, for audiences, TV and radio and everything else. It's the same as anything else. It's the same as the, um, the problems and the challenges which are facing print media. It's that you've got a, a series of skills and a series of abilities, all the people that work in it, and it's just a way of finding a different way to deliver it It's because improving technology. It's no different to the challenges facing newspapers when movable type came in or when colour printing came in or when digitisation came in. This is just a new method of publication and it's the sec- you know on the internet and it's the same with radio. People are accessing radio digitally and they're accessing it on online and accessing it on iPlayer and things like that but I don't really quite think that the BBC any part of it needs to have a brand of its own I don't think that would go with a public service remit for the BBC the BBC is the brand you know I don't want to get a bit W1A about it but the BBC is the brand and the bits of it you know they need to serve the public in the way they do and Radio 1 needs to get to younger people but I don't think it needs to be a brand per se I think that would be jumping the big fish and yet radar still measures when they're listening to <laughs> fm at certain times of the day you're goading me ollie because you know my you know my views i mean you know to me radar is is just nonsensical and maybe as someone who doesn't actually work at a radio station but obviously loves radio and is involved in radio i maybe i can say that a bit easier but it it is still bonkers in this day and age that the radio industry has to wait months and months and months to get figures from months back and the whole system is based on people putting stickers in diaries or ticking something on a screen trying to remember what they were listening to five days ago at seven o'clock in the morning i mean it's just nuts hey i'm ryan reynolds recently i asked mint mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation they said yes and then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Right, let's talk telly. Vice are planning a linear broadcast channel in the UK. Uh, According to Broadcast Magazine, the plan is to partner with local broadcasters to make it happen, doubling the size of its production here in the UK. Steve, they say they're leaning towards a free-to-air solution. Kind of 
sort of means they're going to gravitate towards Channel 4, doesn't it? I can't see who else is going to have the money or the, the platform to, to tie up with Vice. Well, 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 not necessarily, because couldn't they take some space on somewhere like Freeview or Freesat? I'm assuming what you're suggesting is just some programmes that would sit within Channel 4, whereas what I take from that article is them setting up their own channel. Or a channel that's made in association with, so it becomes part of the Channel 4 portfolio. Because otherwise, isn't there a danger it just becomes a bit like current TV again? You know, it sounds like a good idea, but actually no one wants to watch that. Well, I think it goes back to what we were talking about earlier in terms of Radio 1, which is if you want to think about, about modern audiences and particularly young audiences, you've just got to think about that sort of circular journey they're going to go on the fact that you're trying to touch them on every platform that they might interact on and I mean you know it's quite an interesting move in the sense of young audiences are you know don't go to to live tv uh, as much as any of us would have done when we were a little bit younger but it's still got a relevance and, it, and it's still there it's a platform so I think it's part of sort of squaring the circle for them you know clearly they see it as a way to eventually drive people back to the website which is presumably where most of the money is for them. Susie, what do you make of Vice? Because there's a lot of hype, but they've also what got make the numbers. Vice in general or Vice the media? <laughs> Vice. Vice in general, I'm all for. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> uh, yeah, the, the platform Vice. Uh, because they're, they're, they've got the numbers, but there seems to be a disproportionate amount of hype in relation to those numbers. I suppose what I mean by that is, and maybe it's just that I'm too old at the grand age of 34, but actually on my Facebook wall, people aren't sharing Vice links. I think you have to be 22. Well, no, my Facebook wall, they're all sharing pictures of their children's graduation ceremonies and stuff like that. Um, That's a kind of vice. It's, it's really quite irritating that much. Um, I, I think the issue is not so much whether you've got the numbers, because it's quite easy to get numbers sometimes, but it's quality is one of the things that is most important. It's actually going to keep people there and keep... If you're going to be free to view, you're going to have to have some kind of advertising or some kind of funding somewhere in the business. One of the things in that article said that Vice, they've already got 30-odd TV series ready to go. Well, if they're ready to go and they've been sitting on them, then they're not very good TV series. Also, if it's going to be something that's uh, online or something or an actual going to a, a new TV channel somewhere else, then it makes me wonder how they've got so many, how they managed to spend any money on it whatsoever, or whether they're just free things that media students have knocked up and, and put up on YouTube or something. And frankly, whether it's going to be long enough to qualify for what you are and most people call a TV series, or whether it's going to be very short bits, you know, like the kind of internet video things that you get that are very, very short form. But they do make um, documentaries, and they're and obviously sitting on lots and lots of hours that they've already... Um, they've proven works. They've already produced and, and yeah. pe- pe- people are watching in significant numbers. So presumably the idea is we're already creating all this content in a number of offices around the world and therefore you know, there's probably content being produced in other countries that maybe UK audiences haven't seen as much. But it's, there's a lot of content being produced and therefore put that on one channel, you've got, you know, yeah. you, you've got a schedule ready to go. But it's also a relatively cheap way of producing TV. But there are lots of companies that do that. I mean, Barcroft Media, for example, who produces lots of stuff, tends to sell series on an ad hoc basis to something like Channel 5, mm. you know, the girl with five heads kind of thing, uh, documentaries. And they're perfectly useful and good, but I don't know... And they've got channels on YouTube and stuff, but I don't know they have a, enough for a TV channel on their own and all the logistics and stuff that that would be involved in, really, well, it- to run a professional... Enterprise. It's also the format point, isn't it? I mean, Armando Iannucci made the point in his McTaggart this year that, you know, Netflix have revolutionised the TV industry, so-called by commissioning a, a remake of the BBC's House of Cards and doing an hour-long drama, effectively. Um, I wonder whether, you know, Vice taking a 12-minute thing or a 75-minute documentary and then sticking that on a linear TV channel actually just doesn't play into the tried and tested ways people actually do want to consume TV, which is with recaps every 10 minutes in a format that they know at the same time every week. I don't think you can second guess it, can you? I mean, I mean, potentially you might say, if you're Vice, would you look at potentially reversioning some of that stuff? Because obviously TV, you can sit with longer formats, whereas online, potentially some of the bits you offer, you, you know, you want to offer a, a shorter version. And clearly, if you're then creating some sort of teaser or something for social media, you're going even even smaller and short, shorter again. So, um, but, I mean, I wouldn't bet against them purely because I think what they've done up until now has been incredibly impressive and when you look at them in the sort of space of them and BuzzFeed and Mashable um, you'd probably say they're currently the sort of leader uh, so I, th- I would say uh, ignore them at your peril in terms of they understand how to reach younger audiences and, and create current affairs or newsy related stuff that is relevant for that audience. Yeah I mean that is their real achievement isn't it getting young people talking about news at all uh, sticking on news BBC Newsnight something that I imagine uh, people of an older generation do spend a little bit longer with uh, uh, a journalist working there has had his laptop confiscated by police under the Terrorism Act, uh, and the BBC did not contest it. Uh, Susie, what's going on here? What's the story? Well, it's kind of standard 
back practice if you're a journalist in normal news coverage that you'd have to speak to the police now and again and quite often help them with their inquiries. I had a phone call from a couple last week about a story I did years ago about someone who claimed to have been assaulted um, at the BBC and who had reported to the police and been unsatisfied with the way it had been handled by them and the BBC. I wrote a story about it and because we'd used a pseudonym because she was a, a sexual assault victim the copper wanted to know who that person was in order to rule them out of the inquiries that they were also doing and could I speak to her and all the rest of it. Because she's a victim of crime, because she'd already spoken to the police I had absolutely no reason whatsoever not to just say yeah here's, fine here's the notebook here's my, here's my phone number for her these are the details, I just read it out over the phone it's not an issue. But that wasn't in really abusing your position of trust with her. In the case of this Newsnight journalist, he's gone around speaking to people who are wannabe jihadis. Uh, and who the are jihadis, said, who was in Syria who are at the jihadis, time. Yeah, who have come, and the police have said, using the Terrorism Act, we need to know who these people well, are. Well, they, they initially would have approached that producer and said, we'd like to talk to you about this bloke called Mo, who um, has been in Newsnight and you've interviewed him and he says he's a jihad and he's in Syria. And uh, he's not a confidential source. He's not like Ollie Mann has come up to me and said, Susie, I've got a great story here about the inner workings of LBC. Don't mention my name, but here's all the detail and here's a leaked memo. And I've gone in and published it. And then so I would obviously entirely protect... Entirely in her imagination, by the way. I would way, obviously then protect your identity and, and say, you know, you can have my notebook over my dead body to the police officers. Mm-hmm. In this particular instance, it's someone who has committed a crime allegedly you know is terrorism who uh, who was admitted to committing that crime who is trying to promote terrorism via propaganda via the BBC and the police is after to speak to him I don't know whether they use a pseudonym or not it wasn't a confidential source they say however the BBC has stood on a principle here and said we will not give up a notebook just on principle you know it's the opposite of what the Sun did when the phone hacking investigation came along when they threw every confidential source they had under the bus in order to try and um, avoid a corporate prosecution I had all these uh, prosecutions for paying police officials and stuff instead. Because they've had, then had to go and get a warrant, it's then under the Terrorism Act that they have to give over the laptop, and they don't argue it because they're happy to help police their inquiries, but they just wanted to be forced by the police, if you see what I mean. But in this particular instance, I think the BBC have been just a bit, tiny, teeny, tiny bit ridiculous. Because A, he wasn't a confidential source. He didn't speak to them in secrecy. He's not someone that you are, you should be protecting. Number, you know, he's, he is a terrorist. He claims to be a terrorist. It is so easy as well to find jihadis online. I mean, they're all happy to talk to journalists. You've only got to DM them. They're on half uh, the encrypted apps like Kik and WhatsApp and things like this. Uh, if the police are really compelled to ask the BBC to do their work for them, they're being extremely lazy because they should be on top of these guys' phones and mobile networks anyway without asking the BBC to do their work for them. And to be honest, if someone came to me and I'd spoken to a jihadi and I had no interest whatsoever in protecting him and he was potentially a threat and MI5 said, could, could you tell us whether he's really this bloke from Luton that he claimed to be? I'll say, well, look, you know, here's my number and there you are. Because also the problem is when they seize a laptop or a notebook from a journalist, you've got a whole bunch of other information in there and not having that would stop you doing your job on a longer-term basis with so many other stories. Um, but, but actually, to stand being, on a principle, unless it's really worth it, would be futile because they keep those laptops for a year or more. But being the journalist who ultimately, I mean, this is how the terrorists might see it, being the journalist who gave up the source, whether or not it was officially confidential or not, is going to prevent other people coming to you, which is going to prevent the public. If ISIS take over Britain, all the journalists are dead anyway. <laughs> so really, you're not you're not doing an awful lot by protecting him. You know, if you're protecting a, a, a secret source whose job is at risk, whose life is at risk, obviously you do that. And I would. Uh, go to prison rather than give up a source in that kind of circumstance but when that person claims to be a terrorist is wanted by the police I think the journalist does have some responsibility to try and help them wherever possible if not giving them you know all their personal details then certainly pointing them in the right direction maybe And uh, but I think it was impractical to wait for the laptop to be seized and I'm sure I hope that in the time that they, they were waiting for that and the warrant was issued and so on they erased everything else of any use on that laptop or copied it onto a different hard drive so they could carry on with their work Sticking with journalism, a quick update on the freedom of information story that we mentioned last episode. Uh, the government is holding a consultation until the end of November. The link's on our website, themediapodcast.com. Uh, and the press are starting to sing with one voice on this issue. The Guardian listed on Friday 103 front-page stories from British papers that couldn't have been possible without FOI requests. Uh, I'm going to try this question again. I tried it with Maggie Brown. Uh, she'd applied for one FOI request, she said, on the pod, and then, and then not bothered to chase it up, so she was the wrong person to ask. Susie, I imagine FOI requests have been useful to you in your job. 
I do them fairly regularly. They're usually not useful because the whole purpose of freedom of information laws in this country is to withhold information from people. In America, there is a the similar Freedom of Information Act and the presumption is always that everything goes online and you've got to kind of prove that it shouldn't if you want to keep a secret. In the UK, a law which was brought in by Blair, who's one of the many sins he's responsible for, um, the presumption was it should never be made public unless you could prove that it should. So you have to really, you know, if you want to say, for example, I would like to know what um, emails Michael Gove has shared with his advisors from his official email account this week, you have to voice it and word it in such a detailed and delicate way that there's no possible way they can wriggle out of it. Because if you don't actually nail down which email account and which days and which times and which officials... Then and that you're okay with redaction of names or something like that, then they'll just say, oh, we can't under this, or we can't under that. Most of the time, the FOI requests that you make are denied under ridiculous exemptions that you then have to constantly argue and fight to the point where, when you do get the story, it's completely out of date and it's no damn use anymore. As I often tell um, my journalism students as well, if you apply under your own name as a journalist, it takes four seconds for someone to Google it, find out you're a journalist, and then say, right, well, I'm not answering this question. It gets booted up to the press office, and you get the press office answer, not the FOI answer. So always try and use a pseudonym for when you're doing your FOI requests, which also upsets the FOI people, especially if they work out that that pseudonym's associated with that journalist. You have to keep changing them around. So hold on, you're, I'm going to give you an FOI request now to ask you how many pseudonyms you've used whilst you try to get FOIs. <laughs> oh, half a dozen. <laughs> It's just a case of setting up an email account. It's really easy. Don't tell the government. Um, But what really upsets me about this story is that Chris Grayling, who's in charge of all this today, has said that um, journalists are misusing this act in order to generate stories and that's not what it's for. That is precisely what it's for. Because journalists are normal citizens and every citizen in this country has a right to access information about how the government is operating on its behalf. So journalists have a right to do that. All those 103 stories which The Guardian revealed were in the public interest and very important. One of them, as well, was a a three-year FOI battle waged by Chris Grayling when he was in opposition against the Department of Transport for his own political ends. And he's now saying that they shouldn't be doing that kind of thing and that if if you do do it, you should be fined, you know, pay punitive amounts in order to access information. So this freedom of information is actually not free and if you do get it, it's not real information. It's a crime against humanity and it shouldn't be allowed. Well, there you are. That's pretty clear. Um, Steve, when you see that kind of passion coming from journalists and we see similar passions being inflamed at the BBC about potential cutbacks there on the back of what John Whittingdale has been saying does it seem to you as it does to me that actually the government is trying to get all of its bad news out of the way now so that when it comes around to the next election the media might be a bit soft on them again so they're just right now just hitting the media with everything well governments always obviously are at their most powerful when they're in the you know the early stages of a of a parliament rather than the than the latter stages and and i think this uh, government in particular it's the first time obviously we've had a conservative government in a long long time and i think we're seeing a lot of uh, a lot of agendas and a lot of scores being settled very quickly and things undone that they weren't so happy about that 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 came in during the uh, labor years and look i mean you know i mean you've talked about it a lot on this podcast and in, and in other media environments the the attacks on the BBC. I personally, I find it very difficult to see that in any light other than politically motivated. And yet, probably, we will all forget about it by the next election. We'll be talking about something else. We'll be talking about uh, whoever the current leader of the Tories is not turning yeah, up to the TV the debate. Of, moment, that's right? the fault of the fact we now spend so much time online. We've got much shorter attention spans. <laughs> we click on something and we read it quickly. We see, we see if the tweet was amusing or the Facebook share was worth resharing uh, and then we move on to the next thing so we don't actually harbour a grudge in the way that we should do and that's the one thing actually which the old print media does still do some people complain about this but they can hold a grudge for decades and I think that's one of the best things about them yeah. as, as can the public with the print media Liverpool yes. and the Sun for yes, example exactly. uh, right finally one more press story for you Trinity Mirror owner of the Mirror titles obviously and some other things as well uh, has bought out other shareholders to fully own the regional publisher 
Local World. And this is one of the biggest, isn't it? I mean, huge uh, owner of, of local titles, free titles, regional press, evening press, websites. According to the Press Gazette, that values Local World now at £220 million, just over double what it was worth three years ago. Well, they've done well, haven't they, Steve? They have done well. I mean, especially for a local uh, a local paper operation, I can only assume that that value is driven by the fact that they've managed to morph successfully online. Because obviously, there is very little value in local newspapers in terms of you know the physical papers. That's a dying medium, I think. Uh, you know, however, however you view it. Um, so they they must have some decent numbers to back it up. Trinity Mirror are not stupid people, you know. So the um, so the EBITDA has clearly got to be good, and the and the ratio they've attached to that must be decent, based on the fact that they that, that, that there's a strong presence online that's working well. But behind all that, what it means, I'm sure some of our listeners can back this up, is is people, journalists, content creators, call them what you like, working for local titles, have lost their jobs. Uh, Susie, we're probably going to see more redundancies on the way as a result of this, aren't we? Even if Trinity Mirror didn't intend to do that, just I don't if you're going to keep um, making it more efficient. I don't, I don't think I've ever heard of a company taking over another company that didn't make redundancies, uh, and Trinity Mirror have got redundancies on their national titles as well. But Local World is triple the size of the next two largest regional publishers. Yes, and Trinity Mirror have been in regional publishing for a long time and they've had redundancies and cutbacks in there and everything else, but still got a lot of um, access to people. I think on the one hand it's a good sign because people it shows that somebody's actually prepared to invest in local newspapers. No matter what it is that they intend to do with that in the future, that's got to be something good because uh, lots of people think things like local newspapers are dying and there's problems and it's not going to work anymore and blah, blah. But if you don't have local newspapers, you don't have local journalism, whether that's online or on radio or on TV or anything else, you're not holding your local authority and your local councils to account. And believe it or not, it's your local councils, the parish council, the town council, the county council, who have most impact on people's lives. Compared to the government, we spend so much time covering the government and their big decisions. What really matters to people is who's organising their bin collections, who's sorting out the potholes, who is arranging the care for their grandmother. This kind of thing is all done by local authorities. There are fewer and fewer people voting in local elections these days. At the last election in 2010, there were more uncontested seats than ever before, so that people are just being returned to the local council seat without any argument whatsoever, as though they're just kind of ordained to be the local parish councillor. And those are the people that sort out your um, your planning applications and your bypasses and all the kind of stuff that matters most to people. So if you can find a way to invest in local journalism, even if that means changing the method of delivery for it, or perhaps reducing some of the numbers, so you're you know having fewer sub-editors and more reporters or something, as long as you are still getting those local stories, then it's got to be for the good, for all of us. But the issue is, I guess, a lot of those local journalists aren't going down to the local county court, Unfortunately, I think fewer of them are actually going out. Yeah, yeah. I was at the Kent Press Awards uh, last year, which um, I started as a trainee in Kent when I was about 18 and um, I was very honoured to be invited to go back as a judge and I was on a table of journalists who were at my old local paper and they, you know, I spent my traineeship going to the parish council meetings I spent my 21st birthday at a planning committee because I genuinely was that kind of 21 year old and I you know, knew the coppers, I knew the councillors, I knew the figures and everyone else in the street and there was an office in the middle of the town, you could speak to people if you made a mistake Mrs Miggins came in with her cat to complain to you about it and now those journalists sit in the big office in a slightly different town churning stuff out, they tweet and they Facebook and all this kind of stuff and they do multi-platform stuff but they do not go and knock on doors in the same way, they don't attend councils in the same way, they don't dig out stories they don't know some of the people in the same way but if you can find a way to make it work online, going back to the original thing we were talking about here, about online content if you can find a way to make that business plan work then journalism actually has access to more readers than ever before in human history you should be making more money than ever before in human history therefore you can get less out of each one a penny out of each reader but you're still making more money and you should therefore be a stronger industry than ever eventually in maybe 10 or 20 years time we have to crack the online business content and then local journalism national journalism international journalism is safe forever doesn't the power of social media potentially navigate against that in terms of that old cliche of you know the local uh, you know a bunch of local residents being able to mobilize themselves and being able to communicate with each other in a way that obviously 20 30 years ago the only way that was going to happen was you went around in the evening and rung on everybody's doorbell to say have you heard that this yeah. power station is going to be built but locally not everyone's or, on social media no but know. but obviously the numbers are still growing and and we've we've you know long ago broken away from the time when it was only uh, only younger audiences on 
on social and I, I mean you know certainly I can think of my own local environment where issues at the local school have been driven far more by social media than they have by the local But you have press. to know the people that are involved in that campaign in order to pick up their message yes, wherever yeah, it might be. Yeah. If you happen to be a parent in that school who doesn't follow yeah. the PTA on Twitter or something then you're not going to get the news. Yeah. But you're more likely perhaps to follow the uh, the local news feeds for the local BBC channel or for the local ITV or anything else and they, if they're reporting on it you're more likely to pick it up and then go and find the right thing because the thing about social media now and online generally is that rather and radio even is that rather than having blanket you know open broadcast of publication where you're hoping people pick it up you're having to directly target people you're going straight into their heads via their mobile phone when they're on the toilet last thing at night and that you need they need to be able to know exactly what they get they're, they're targeting one story out of um, a news outlet not hundreds of them and you have to be able to get them in that one particular special target way so I mean the truth is I think is the middle area isn't it I mean you're right in saying that social isn't as young as it used to be Steve and, and you're right Susie in saying it's not just really old people who read local papers anymore there might be people who are parents and concerned at the school who would check it out but there's somewhere in the middle people probably just don't engage with their local media at all well well local journalism feels to me like one of those sort of worthy things that everybody wants it because everyone can understand that but no like, one wants to spend the money but on no one wants you know exactly. I, I don't know I don't know and I literally can't think of one person I know who buys a local newspaper. And that's pr- now that's probably a London-centric thing. I'm sure if I, you know, you know, maybe if I was living in a small village somewhere where 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 that might be much much more relevant, that that may be true. So I'm I'm happy to hold my hand up and say I live in a little media bubble and I may not be representative. Well, I live but in a small village in Kent now, and I don't have much access to the local newspapers because the shop is a long way away, and I, I get my news in other ways and everything else, and I don't need it in the same way. But I think half the problem is. That you don't have local communities in the way you used to. People are far more dispersed. People are far further away from their families, and they're not perhaps quite so tuned into what's happening in their street or in their village or town, whether that's the London village or somewhere else, than they used to be. Because well, they go to work, they worry about stuff they see on Twitter, and they worry about their kids' school, and that's the end of their interest in things. Because we've got this short attention span because we spent too much time online. Well, I'd like to just put a word into my uh, Hertfordshire Parish newsletter that gets delivered by car to my door. Uh, on a monthly basis uh, for an absolutely brilliant value subscription of I think £12 a year I, I inherited it when I moved into the house and I've been too terrified to tell, tell the old woman that I don't really want it I'm not that interested in what's happening at the WI uh, but I do quite enjoy reading it good boy for paying it it's good yeah yeah and I get to find out about the local events Apple Day the other week uh, right before we go there is just time for our media quiz uh, hooray I'll say as the guests look blank uh, this week it is entitled Vested Interests uh, I'll give you three opinions expressed by a company or an individual you tell me who would say that wouldn't they uh, so Susie I know you've only been here once before just the protocol is you buzz in with your name right. uh, it seems to be a hard concept for many buzzer. guests to understand no you just say Susie oh right okay and Steve what do you say Susie <laughs> <laughs> we're all on the same page uh, right it's a quick fire buzz in with your name when you know the answer the winner is Dr Jekyll and the loser hides from Ofcom. That's a terrible pun uh, that I didn't write. Uh, Okay, here is question number one. Who would say that, wouldn't they? BBC One and BBC Two should be banned from airing international formats. Buzz, Susie. (laughs) Yes, Susie. ITV. Correct. Tell us more. Or Sky. <laughs> they, I think they've been part of this a general sort of uh, consultation about the future of the BBC, which last time I looked had about a thousand different independent reviews and reports and stuff going, oh, you just need one, for goodness sake, what a waste of money. Um, and they, they say that the BBC shouldn't be able to be able to buy drama series. So, for example, to buy popular American things or to buy the Voice franchise, which frankly they shouldn't have spent money on because it's a waste of time. And they should just concentrate and do their own stuff and let ITV buy up the stuff that's commercial. Yes, good, absolutely right. This is ITV in their response to a culture, media and sport committee inquiry saying uh, BBC shouldn't buy international formats unless no one else wants them. Uh, Steve, the problem with that obviously is, is you're kind of condemning the BBC to air only unpopular stuff and some of the formats we think of as uniquely BBC like Dragon's Den and The Apprentice are international formats done in a very BBC way yeah absolutely right I, and obviously you're also you know you could argue you, uh, uh, for content creators you're distorting the market because you're basically what you're basically saying is ITV you're the most powerful commercial player you have your pick of what you want name your price mm. and that's obviously going to be a low price because don't worry anyone else who's got money isn't going to compete with you alright here's uh, number two which vested interest said this BBC Worldwide shouldn't be privatised Buzzing when you know the answer. 
I have no idea. Uh, well, it must be the BBC Channel Four. That name, say your name, <laughs> Susie. Yes. <laughs> Uh, Channel 4. Yes. I don't know why, though. I only said I said that because you said 4 at me. I was miming the number 4 <laughs> at you. But don't say that because now you've made it obvious I've engineered the result. We're now going to have to have a, a deadline anyway. Well, I'm, I'm going to put in an official judge's complaint. The fact you were, you were miming it to Susie and not to me. So. We need to have an off com <laughs> yeah. view of the yeah. whole thing. Uh, yes, this is the view of Channel 4 also being considered by the government for a sell-off. And here we are. We're at deadlock, even though Susie's won because clearly I rigged it. So, uh, Steve, it's all to play for. I'm not going to be offended in any way at all. Here's vested interest Question number three. The campaign against my colleague Seamus Milne is deeply unfair. Which vested interest said that? Well, it must be someone from the Guardian. with your name. Susie. No. Steve said it first. Steve, say Steve. Steve. Right. Steve. Steve, Susie. I'm covering all bases. Well, it must be the Guardian, but I have no idea who at the Guardian. Yes, it was uh, Guardian columnist Owen Jones said right. it. Uh, of course, Seamus Milne has gone on temporary leave to head up Labour's comms team. Uh, Susie, what do you make of that appointment, by the way? Uh, I, well, if they want to appoint um, someone from a newspaper to operate as a comms team, that's probably a good idea. They've certainly done it in the past. It worked um, for Alistair Campbell, didn't it's it? Worked, well, you know, Tom Baldwin's been there for the Tories and uh, Alistair Campbell's been there for Labour. That's fair enough. What I object to on a massive scale is the fact that he's on leave from The Guardian to do this. Now, that effectively means that The Guardian is in the government's pocket. Or, sorry, in the oppo- in Labour Party's pocket. Does it? Yes. Why? Why? Yes, because it will toe the line. It means that he's still an employee, number one. When, when any journalist stops being objective at all, then they are not a journalist anymore. If you take an honour from the government of the day, if you um, go he's, to work for that one particular political party, you have to stop being a journalist. You are not a journalist anymore. he'll go back to the Guardian, anymore. won't he, when Jeremy Corbyn is unsuccessful fine, in fine, the then, general election? Resign and then resign and go. No longer... But to keep hold of your job... Now, I don't know what the pay arrangement is anything else, but to keep hold of your job effectively means that that paper is saying it supports that party leader and that political viewpoint. But the and the Guardian is a Labour supporting paper. There's people no say that about there. the Mirror, but they still criticise Gordon yeah. Brown. And they still and they still one, they say that Daily Mail is a Tory I, I, party, I but they still criticise Cameron. I don't quite understand the controversy. I mean, I didn't know he was on leave, but I don't. I mean, when you say the, the, the minute a journalist stops being objective, they're not a journalist. I mean, there's huge swathes of journalists, so you can't claim they're objective in any way at all. I, 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 well, and, and, you know, there's nothing wrong with that. They sort of work for a newspaper that has a particular left or right Objectivity bias. Objectivity is a perception, though. Yeah, and if you work for... A, I've worked for the Mail, and I've worked for the Guardian, and I've worked for the Sun, and every time I've worked for a different paper, I get accused of towing that paper's uh-huh. line because you happen to do write a particular story for them. That doesn't mean you've lost your objectivity. What about Andrew Pearce? His handle on Twitter is at Tory Boy Pierce. He's quite open about the fact that he's, he's a the Conservative supporter. He's slightly well, different. He's, he's you're got a senior opinion. position at the Mail, hasn't I he? I think if you're a, um, if, especially if you're a reporter, generally you it's, you just you have to be objective. Okay. It's not quite the same. We have Ofcom rules, but I'm disgusted as a journalist that someone who is a journalist and is now working for a political party thinks they can still be a journalist. You can't. You I can't. D- Doesn't matter what party it is that you're doing it for. I don't quite understand the idea of, of, of sort of keeping his job open in the sense of well surely uh, he could have left and then when he's finished doing his job for the Labour Party he, yeah. he goes back I mean I'm, I'm not quite sure. It's well, a bit of ridiculous editorial decision by um, the Guardian. I'm going to make a ridiculous editorial decision now and end this podcast, even though this is very entertaining to listen to, and it's been so long that Bring I've actually forgotten who Seamus won the quiz, Milne. which is just as well. I uh, won the quiz. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I declare Steve the winner. Uh, thank you to Steve Ackerman. Thank you to Susie Boniface. Thank you very much. Uh, you can find all of our previous instalments and get new ones downloaded automatically straight to your phone. Just head to themediapodcast.com. And today's show is dedicated to the following fantastic people who made it happen thank you very much Andrew Winter uh, development telly nerd Sam Shatabi Tom Blakeson, Martin Clench and Mark Gannon uh, who included with his donation the note that he is quote more than happy to pay to keep creativity free Uh, That all sounds very noble. If you'd just like to give us some money and get your name on the show, then please do help us. It's how we keep this show running. TheMediaPodcast.com slash dedicate. Uh, And there's a whole range of options there now. Thank you for those of you who suggested on Twitter we should provide them. Uh, We have. Uh, You can now submit your sponsorship at various different levels. And thank you very much for the cold hard cash as well as your ears. I've been Ollie Mann. The producer is Matt Hill. The Media Podcast is a PPM production. Until next time, bye-bye. Hold up. 
Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.